There are only 360 people in the United States and about 4,400 individuals worldwide that have Q-grade certification. In the world of coffee, these people are called cuppers. They are coffee-tasting experts. The Q-grade certification requires an exhaustive test. I mean, it's like the bar exam of coffee. It takes six days. It costs $2,000. Very few people pass the test their first try. But those who do have amazing coffee discernment. You know, we've all had experiences of savoring a tasty cup of coffee or maybe spitting out coffee that we thought was too bitter. We might even have met a Starbucks barista who definitely knows their coffee. But a person with Q-grade certification has taken coffee drinking to another level. I mean, these people taste nuances in coffee that the amateur coffee connoisseur fails to differentiate. A professional coffee cupper will use words foreign to most common coffee drinkers when describing their cup of joe. It's a compliment if a cupper labels a coffee clean or acidic or bright, whereas terms like earthy or dirty or flat or musty is hurling a coffee insult. At a recent convention in New York City, one Q-certified taster was brought into a room where 300 cups of coffee sat on five different tables. He was given a set of traits to look for and asked to pick out the cup that most characterized those distinctives. Within seconds, this particular expert had chosen the right cup. I mean, these folks have olfactory skills and taste buds that perceive subtleties the rest of us might miss. One professional coffee cupper made the comment, I can tell from blindly tasting a cup of coffee, not just that it is from Guatemala, but from what state it comes, at what altitude it was grown, and on what mountain. Now that's some impressive coffee discernment. And this is what the Apostle John addresses in today's text. Not discernment in coffee tasting, but spiritual discernment. John speaks of us understanding the nuances in our hearts, in prayer, in our relationship with God, in the spiritual realm, and certainly in the world around us. You know, just being a coffee drinker doesn't mean you know a lot about coffee. And just being a Christian doesn't mean you have great discernment. It doesn't mean that you're living confidently and victoriously as a Christian. You know, I was stunned this past week to read that 83% of all adults in America drink coffee. 83%. That's 587 million cups of coffee every day, which is an average of three per person. We drink a lot of coffee, but we're not necessarily discerning drinkers. We even have coffee snobs. You ever met one of these people? They grind their own beans. They create their own flavors. Or they frequent some exclusive coffee shop. These folks think they know coffee, but compared to a pro cupper, they're a novice. And likewise in America, we talk a lot about God, don't we? 
and spiritual things. People even claim to be Christians. Some people grind their own ideas and combine them to create their own special blend of religion. But that doesn't mean that they have biblical discernment. To be God-certified in spiritual things, you have to open your Bible. God's Word is what discerns true from false and real from fake. And John wants us all to have this kind of discernment able to recognize what's going on in our own hearts, in prayer, in our relationship with God, in the spiritual realm, and in the world around us. Well, we begin this morning in verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now with these words, by this, John is referring to his previous thoughts about loving God. You know, last time we were together, we talked about how to be a better lover. This is accomplished by loving, not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is how Jesus has loved us, and it's how we should love one another. And when we love like Jesus loves, it breeds confidence that we've been touched by him, that his love dwells within us, that we know his truth. That we are truly children of God. Do you have this kind of confident heart? Do you know that you know God? It's his love that spawns this assurance. You know, I know that I am a true child of God, not because I pray every day or attend church or always give an offering or teach a Sunday school class or even speak with unknown tongues. I know that I know God because his love fills my heart and is revealed in my actions. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, verse 35, By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's true. Love is the believer's birthmark. You know, it's sad. It's frustrating whenever I speak to someone about their soul, and they're not sure where they stand with God. You know, lots of people have no confidence, no assurance. That if they died, they would go to heaven. These are people who made a commitment to Christ at some point in their past. They were involved in church. There had even been some spiritual growth in the past. But now time and failure and distance has created some doubt and some uneasiness in their heart. They're no longer sure. You know, today, video engineers, they speak of the magnetic media crisis. When video cameras first became popular back in the 80s and 90s, Americans captured their family times and their children's upbringing on VHS tape. Do you remember those? The problem with that magnetic tape, though, is that it has a lifespan of about 15 to 20 years before it loses its magnetic properties and the images it captured begin to fade and disappear. And that's what's happening to my generation's magnetized memories. We're losing them without knowing it. They need to be digitized and preserved. And yet this is also what happens to the assurance of a person's salvation. The confidence they once possessed that was part of their faith can begin to fade. Assurance is degradable. And it is our ongoing experiences with God that renew our assurance. 
when I sense his love for me, and when I love him in return, this sort of digitizes my faith. This is what creates a permanent assurance. What joy it is to have a comforted, confident heart. He says, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, the opposite of a confident heart is a conflicted heart. And it's possible for even a Christian to have a heart that feels conflicted, that feels condemned. God's Spirit is not the one who brings condemnation. It's the devil who condemns. God's Spirit convicts us. He exposes our sin and our need for the Savior. But He doesn't condemn us. He draws us to Christ. Conviction gives hope. Condemnation, despair. Conviction brings repentance. Condemnation, regret. Conviction prompts change. Condemnation keeps me in chains. Conviction leads me back to God. Condemnation buries me under a mound of guilt. You remember Peter, he denied the Lord, yet he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, and it led to his forgiveness. Whereas Judas, who denied the Lord in much the same way as did Peter, he felt condemned, and he went out and hung himself. See, conviction led to restoration and a brand new life. Condemnation led to suicide and the ending of a life. Yet here, John says to believers, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Realize, just because your heart condemns you doesn't mean God is condemning you. God is greater than a condemning heart. God desires for us conviction and comfort and confidence in Him. You know, there are all kinds of reasons this morning why you might feel condemned. There could be a sin in your past that God has forgiven, but you refuse to let go of. There could be an overworked conscience that's bothering you, that's not in sync with God's grace. That could be condemning you. The disapproval of others can hang a cloud of failure over our heads. Impossible standards imposed on us as a child can still haunt us. The scorn of a parent or a spouse can cause feelings of unworthiness. Overlooked traditions can spawn guilt, even though now in Christ we've been set free. See, some of us are harder on ourselves and more demanding than God is. I like Psalm 103. It says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. How often we forget what God remembers, that we are dust. That we're frail and feeble and prone to failure. Why is it we expect more out of ourselves sometimes than God does? What kind of perverse pride causes that? If you're in Christ and are still carrying around a burden of condemnation, there's a problem with your faith. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think the first lesson every believer needs to learn is that our faith should be based on fact, not feeling. See, I'm a Christian not because I always feel like one. 
I'm a Christian because God sent his son to bear my sin and die in my place. And he promised me in his word that the day I asked Jesus to forgive me, he would. And though my feelings are sometimes fickle and fleeting and often change, the fact of what Jesus did for me and has promised to me never changes. Here's a true statement. The devil lives in the realm of feeling, but Christians should live in the realm of fact. Here's one of my favorite poems. Three men were walking on a wall, feeling, faith, and fact. When feeling took an awful fall, then faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that he stumbled and fell too. But fact remained and pulled faith back. And faith brought feeling too. See, it's the facts that manipulate our feelings. We need to put our faith in the facts. Are you allowing your feelings to have an undue and unhealthy influence on your faith? Many Christians are. We need to stop and align our faith with the facts. This is the key to a confident heart. As John says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. We do ourselves a favor to train our hearts to rest in the love of God, to rest in the truth of the gospel, not in our own fickle feelings. This is important for discerning our own heart is a key step to an effective prayer life. John writes, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Love in word and in deed, and you'll be assured of salvation. Then you'll be bold with the prayers you pray and the answers you expect. You know, if you're confident you belong to God, then you'll be confident that you belong before God. You won't be timid. You won't be ashamed to come to Him when you have a request. Realize prayer is for God's friends. Thus, when you want to please Him and you prove it by your lifestyle, God is quick to answer your prayers. Keep His commandments and you can ask your petitions. And verse 23 tells us what is the commandment that God wants us to keep. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Don't you love the simplicity of God's commandments? Mankind's tendency is to complicate, but God loves to keep things simple. I've heard it said, the United States has 35 million laws trying to enforce 10 commandments. God keeps His commandments brief and simple. Believe in Jesus and love one another. This is His commandment. You know, the Jewish law included 613 commandments that covered every aspect of life. Religion was complex and complicated, but Jesus condensed all God's commands down to two. Believe on Him and love one another. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love each other? This is what God expects of us. And if we keep these commands, if we trust Jesus and love each other, God will answer our prayers. He says so here in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. 
For the last three years, our family has gotten tickets to the hallowed grounds of Augusta National and to the Masters. If you're a golf fan, you know that the toughest ticket to get to any sporting event is to the Masters. I mean, some fans never get the opportunity to attend. Currently, a Thursday ticket from StubHub will cost you a whopping $2,200. I don't have that kind of money for golf tickets, or for any tickets for that matter. But we get our tickets not because of what we have or what we've done, but because of who we know. My son, Mac, works for Augusta National, and he gets his two free tickets for each day of the tournament. And this is how it works with God. Whatever you ask and get from God comes not because of what you have or what you've done. It comes because of who you know. You receive because you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Yet here's what happened this year. One of Mac's siblings, who will remain anonymous, (laughs) copped a bit of an attitude. He got upset that he didn't get the tickets on the day he wanted. And so he almost missed out. Rather than be grateful, rather than love his family, as it says here in verse 23, (laughs) he nearly missed out on what was freely given. You think, how can this happen? How can anybody take for granted a privilege that so many people relish, yet it occurs in our relationship with God? God wants to answer our prayers. Freely, He wants to give to us. But if we think we're entitled to those blessings, or if we get upset that God doesn't allocate those blessings the way we would like, Or if we ask the Father to bless us while at the same time we're being unloving to our family members, we too can miss out. If your prayers aren't getting answered, it could be you've copped an attitude. In prayer, we also need to check our hearts and ask for spiritual discernment. And then chapter 3 ends, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now here's the ultimate source of our spiritual discernment. The Holy Spirit who abides in us. You remember on the eve of his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room. He breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, Jesus created a heart connection with his men that lasted long after his ascension into heaven. Jesus lives in his followers through his spirit. And this is God's greatest gift to you and me. No one becomes a child of God without the spirit of God. Jesus is with us. He abides in us by his Holy Spirit. And this is strategic. We need the Holy Spirit. Because chapter 4 begins with a warning about other spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Understand, the human spirit is like a satellite dish. It picks up all kinds of signals from all kinds of sources. 
God speaks to me. Whereas the devil can plant thoughts in my mind. This world is bombarding me with deceptive messaging all the time. My emotions influence me daily. My conscience, even my subconscious, are actively influencing my behavior. Even that late night slice of pizza causes disturbing impressions. Pepperoni speaks to me, just not in a constructive way, especially after 9 o'clock. And this is why John cautions us, test the spirits, whether they are of God. Again, we need spiritual discernment. And in the next several verses, John tells us how to run a spiritual background check. Hope all you parents realize that before we put anybody to work in the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain Children's Ministry, we ask them to submit to a criminal background check. We do our due diligence to make sure we're not endangering our kids. And the same is true with the church and with God's kids. We need to check out anyone who comes in this church speaking in his name. Are they really of God? Or are they of another spirit? And here's the criteria we're instructed to look for in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. To peel back the appealing facade of a person or an impression discover what are they saying about Jesus. John tells us that any spirit, that is any internal influence, which could point to an actual spiritual being, an angel or a demon, it could refer to a prevailing attitude. Sometimes we talk about the spirit of Christmas or the spirit of the age. But any spirit, whether it be a person or whether it be a an idea, any spirit that isn't correct about and exalting of our Lord Jesus, John calls an evil spirit. If it doesn't affirm and honor Jesus, if it does not bow to and glorify Jesus, then you know it's not of God. So let's say a single lady, she walks into the church this morning. She says to her friends, she said, well, I felt God wanted me to sleep with my boyfriend last night. You know, we're soulmates. We love each other. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. Okay, now it's our job to test the spirits. And we do this in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is this what Jesus taught us? Is this what's taught in the scriptures that Jesus affirmed? Would Jesus agree with this young lady's sentiment? WWJD, what would Jesus do? This is how you and I need to test the Spirit. It's not about what seems right to me or my opinion. My opinion's worthless. But is this belief compatible with the nature and teachings of Jesus? Now, throughout his dealings, and particularly here, John was dealing with a deception that was threatening the early church. In fact, already Christian truth was under attack by a heresy that would later be named Gnosticism. The word Gnostic, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, 
was the name that coined these people. These false teachers, they claimed to have special insights, special knowledge that were hidden from the rank and file believers. The Gnostics denied that God had come to earth in human form. They believed that matter was intrinsically evil, thus God would never take on a physical body. To the Gnostics, God was like a rock thrown into the lake. He was the point of impact, but the ripples that emanated from God were less and less pure reflections of His deity. And rather than the actual rock, Jesus was just one of those ripples. He was one of many emanations, they taught, but not God incarnate, not God in the flesh. These heretics denied Jesus' humanity. And they did it in an interesting way. Of course, they couldn't deny that Jesus actually walked the earth. Jesus of Nazareth was a fact of history. There were too many eyewitnesses living even at the time John wrote who had seen Jesus firsthand. Thus, the Gnostics tried to skirt the obvious. They made wild claims that Jesus had appeared, just not in flesh and bone. He was a phantom, a spirit, an apparition. They concocted fanciful tales of Jesus walking on the beach and leaving behind no footprints. In 85 AD, a false teacher named Serenthus taught that the spirit of Messiah had rested on the man Jesus from the time of his baptism until just before he was crucified, at which point the divine spirit departed from the human Jesus. This, of course, denied the incarnation of Jesus as well as his atonement on the cross. These Gnostics rejected the biblical truth that Jesus was fully man and fully God. And this is why here in verse 2, the Apostle John says very specifically, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This was a direct rebuke to these Gnostics. As was the very first verse in the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, when John said, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus was no ghost. John says, We touched him. We wrestled with him. He was real. He was God in the flesh. It's interesting that in the first century, the heretics denied Jesus' humanity. Whereas today, they seem to have changed tactics. Most modern false prophets deny Jesus' deity. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other cults affirm Jesus' manhood, but they deny his godhood. They say he was an angel, or he was a god with a little g, one of many similar lesser gods not the one and only God. Yet John's teaching applies to both denials. John is in essence saying, if you're not right on about Jesus, you're all wrong about God. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, verse 3 says, And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Antichrist is the future, one world leader, spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. He'll deny the truth, Christ, and he'll lead a global revolt against God. He comes in the last days. But John says the spirit of Antichrist. 
an anti-God, an anti-Christ mood has been around since John's day. In fact, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well today. On Friday of this past week, I flew nonstop from Tokyo to Atlanta, a 12-hour flight, and it was torture. I drew a cramped seat assignment. Naturally, I flew coach, but guess who I sat next to on the flight? A whole team of sumo wrestlers. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it wasn't much better. I actually sat next to this big, burly, wide-body fella for 12 of the longest hours of my life. That's a joke, too, but you get the idea. It felt like that. And I'm under no illusion. I'm sure he complained just as much about being stuck next to me as I complained about being stuck next to him. It was an unpleasant experience for us both. I had to work on my Bible study during the flight. It's what I wanted to do. But under the oppressive conditions arranged for me by Delta Airlines, I couldn't concentrate. And since I can't sleep on airplanes, I ended up doing a little mind-numbing. I binge-watched movies for 10 hours straight. (laughs) And by the time I landed, I had come to one very obvious conclusion. Why does every movie maker hate Jesus? Why is this? What is it about the name Jesus that causes Hollywood to take his name in vain at every turn? Not once in any of those movies I watched did I hear anybody angrily shout, Oh, Buddha! Or Mohammed! Not, not, never. Not once. Those screenwriters only curse the name of Jesus. And not just with overt blasphemies that attacked his name. They did that. But then they also mocked his values. It's true. The Antichrist is yet to appear. But this spirit of Antichrist is already at work in this world. Lines are being drawn. This world is getting more and more hostile toward the one who died to save it. Expect overt attacks against Jesus to become increasingly commonplace. And this is why John gives us some encouragement. He knows we're in a battle, that there is a struggle going on. And so he says in verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Notice first, who's the them? Well, the Christian faces a trifecta of evil. The world around us tries to beat us up. The devil wants to rip us off. Our own flesh wants to drag us down. Hey, the Christian life is not a sheltered life. Every believer is going to take some hits, but we fight through, we rise above, we climb over whatever it is that's thrown against us. Our Lord enables us to overcome, and here's how, verse 4, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. At times it may appear as if the world has stacked the deck against us. Your opponent's hand is loaded with aces and kings, but you never forget, you hold the trump card. Yes, you do. Greater is he that is in you than all that is in this wicked world. 
1963, the USS Thresher sunk in 8,400 feet of seawater. The nuclear submarine ended up on the ocean floor a mile and a half under its surface. At that depth, the pressure was so intense that its steel bulkheads buckled. The sub crushed like an eggshell. Sadly, the Thresher's 129-member crew was lost. But what's surprising is that when the Navy went to recover the sub, they spotted all kinds of fish swimming around the wreckage. These fish had skin a fraction of an inch thick, and yet they somehow were able to withstand the same intense pressure that had crushed the sub's steel plates. How is that? The secret was the fish's equilibrium. These deep-sea divers have an internal pressure pushing out equal to the external pressure that is pressing on. And this is the secret of the Christian. This is the secret of an overcoming life. Evil may be pressing in on us, but Jesus is in us, pressing out. The next time a heavy trial comes your way, the next time you're under great pressure, Here's the discernment that you desperately need. Greater is Jesus that is in you than the pressure that is on you. We need his strength. Hey, when, you, when you're weak, when you need strength, hey, I encourage you to remember that the power of God that hung the heavens, that flung the myriad of stars into their orbits, dwells within you. Need wisdom? Keep in mind that the mind of God which knows and grasps all mysteries abides in you. In need of calm and composure? Don't forget the one who fell asleep in the boat knowing he had mastery over the storm. is now riding in your boat. And when you need love, remember that the love that sacrificed itself upon the cross now lives inside of your heart and loves you from the inside out. Let me suggest we put this verse to memory. Verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then we need to discern between the worldly voices and the godly voices. He says in verse 5. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our ears hear only what they've been tuned to hear. If God trains and tunes your ear, you'll listen to God. But if your ear has only been tuned to this world, you'll have no interest in listening to the things of God or the people of God. A man of God could slap you in the face with God's truth and you wouldn't receive it. For the world is deaf to God. The story's told of Charlie Chaplin and the tramp character that he made famous. The bold hat and floppy shoes and cane and mustache. Due to his distinctive traits at the time, there were Chaplin look-alike contests that sprung up all across the country. Well, once in, Chicago, in San Francisco, Charlie Chaplin himself decided to enter the Chaplin Lookalike Contest. And he failed to make the final round. 
The judges couldn't identify the real chaplain, though he was staring them in the face. And this happens with the worldly-minded person. He or she doesn't appreciate God's spokesman and God's truths. John says of this person, he does not hear us. Remember, John was the last of Jesus' 12 apostles. And it was to these original 12 disciples that Jesus gave the authority to bind and to loose. This was a special authority. That through their writings, through the New Testament, they bound the church to certain commandments and they loosed the church from certain commandments. Thus, they weaned the church off of Judaism and they established faith and practice for Christianity. Jesus gave to these first 12 apostles and to their proxies and to only them the authority to determine for the church her doctrines and her practice. Thus, literally, Paul could write in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. Now, here in verse 6, when the apostle John says, we are of God, the we he's referring to is himself and to any of the other apostles that were still alive with him at the time. And when he says, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us, John isn't on some ego trip. He's actually affirming the special position that the 12 apostles occupied in God's plan for the church. John is saying that the people who are of God and who want to hear God will pay attention to the spokespeople that God authorizes to speak on his behalf. And this is how the church has always judged truth from error. Was it spoken by the apostles or under their authority? If so, then it's of God and inspired by God. If not, then it's of the world and should be rejected. And this is John's point. Believers need discernment. We need to be able to differentiate the truth from the error in our own hearts, in prayer, in our relationship with God, in the spiritual realm, and in the world around us.